I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Galatians chapters 4 through 6. We find in Galatians chapter 4 that we are heirs of God. Verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ." Now, Paul ended Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29 with these words, And if ye be Christ, then ye are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In chapter 4, he carries this analogy forward to show that we are heirs of God by the process of adoption made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. He'd shown in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 that Abraham's seed there, the one described in Genesis chapter 15 verses 5 and 6, that that included those who would come to Christ by faith, including, of course, Gentiles. While our physical lineage may not be Jewish, our spiritual heritage goes back to Abraham as adoptees because of and through Jesus Christ. In other words, those under the law are servants to the law, but those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior, well, they're regarded as sons. So here it is. We go from servants to sons of God upon receiving Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. The analogy used by Paul in verses 1 and 2 has its roots in antiquity, but he's not specific to denote whether he's referencing Jewish, Greek, or Roman culture here. In rabbinical writings, we're told that Jewish boys embraced the law as men shortly after their 12th birthday, although the Old Testament majority age was actually 20. In Greek culture, 18 was the age of manhood, while the time was apparently set by the father in Roman culture. No matter which cultural paradigm Paul's referencing here, the picture's the same. In all three cultures, the son was treated as a servant until that point in time when he was treated as an heir. Now, the big news here is in verses 4 and 5, where we see the process whereby God redeemed us to make us heirs. We see in verse 4, but when the fullness of the time was come. It's uncertain how prophetic Paul meant this to be here. The fact is, Jesus came exactly at that prophetic moment that complied with Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Then we see in that verse that God sent forth His Son. There we see that Paul specifies the deity of Jesus Christ. The Son made of a woman, where Paul specifies the humanity of Jesus made under the law, where there Paul specifies the legal requirements of the law which were satisfied by Jesus himself. Then we see in those two verses, to redeem them that were under the law. Now here's the connection to the analogy of verses 1 and 2. 
spiritually under the law is likened to one being a child under tutors and governors. And then it says that we might receive the adoption of sons. Salvation in Jesus Christ makes the believer one of the sons of the adoption. That's in verse 5. And an heir of God through Christ, which is in verse 7. It's important to distinguish here between the usage of pronouns, as Paul's writing. All the way back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, we see Paul drawing a contrast between the Jewish experience prior to salvation as opposed to the experience of Gentiles. While the Jewish people were regarded as children of God, that was a national relationship, not a personal relationship. It had nothing to do with individual salvation. The under-the-law experience of verses 1 through 5 here identifies the Jewish experience. That is, until redemption from under the law in verse 5 and the subsequent new relationship to God, which is described as the adoption of sons. The pronoun turns from we to ye in verse 6. That's where Paul makes the point that Gentiles are also now made part of God's family the same way as Jews, by adoption. Thus, we Gentiles likewise become an heir of God through Christ. Let's not overlook the miracle, verse 6. When one receives Christ as a Savior, notice Paul says that God sends the Holy Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Now make no mistake about it, this is a direct reference to the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life. After salvation, God dwells in believers. Our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit, a point that Paul also emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer at salvation, a fact of Scripture. You can read more about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Look at the notes on those two passages. In the next section of Scripture, verses 8 through 20, we see Paul's admonition not to listen to those Judaizers. Verse 8, Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus." Where is then the blessing that she spake of? For I bear you record that, if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you, that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Now, Paul takes a little time here to address the big issue, the nagging teaching of those Judaizers. Look here. If you're saved by faith, then you're kept by faith also. 
Don't let those rascal false teachers bring you back under the law of Moses. Notice the criticism of the practice of observing the Jewish Sabbath and the high days, those special Sabbaths in verse 10. These apparently were being imposed by the Judaizers on these primarily Gentile believers. Paul emphasizes a real danger in not understanding the finished work of Christ on the cross and continuing in the observance of these days as well as to adhere to these other Jewish laws. He indicates the false motives of the Judaizers, also known as legalizers, in verse 17. Their goal was to win the Galatians over at the exclusion of Paul. Recognizing that Paul's teaching of grace was incompatible with their teaching of submitting to the law of Moses after salvation, they sought to turn the Galatians against Paul and against the true message of grace. So Paul's question in verse 9 is this, You were saved from your impotent, weak, and beggarly elements, which means superstitions and religious practices unable to save, Are you now going to subscribe to another set of such rules and regulations? So has Paul wasted his time on these Galatians, having given them the gospel of grace only to have it displaced by a law-grace hybrid teaching by these Judaizers? Well, that's the big question of verse 11. In expressing his concern for them, Paul encourages those Galatians in verse 12 by saying, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. We simply don't have enough in that verse to conclusively decide what Paul exactly means by that statement. From context, he seems to be implying that they need to be free from the law of Moses just as he is. Paul makes a reference to an eye ailment that he had in verses 13 through 15. This ailment undoubtedly is the same infirmity that he spoke of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he asked the Lord to remove it from him. And it was probably the result of the stoning he received in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 23. That's where they left him for dead. Though obvious, even to the casual reader, some today deny that Paul's infirmity of the flesh was actually a physical ailment involving his eyesight. There's simply no question that God had declined to heal Paul of his eye ailment. He says so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. So, does God heal today? Well, I'm convinced that he does. Every time? No, not every time. Not today, nor in Paul's day. It's scripturally advisable to pray with people regarding their illnesses. The wisdom of James chapter 1, verse 5 should be sought regarding the illness. James 1, 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. It's wrong to teach a doctrine that God wants to heal every one of every physical infirmity, but cannot if they can't muster up enough faith to claim that miracle of healing. That's just a bad doctrine. Wisdom, 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 wisdom. The wisdom of James 1.5 is the key to healing and any other adversity in a person's life. Pray for wisdom. We see the battle lines clearly drawn in verses 16 through 20 between these Judaizing teachers and Paul himself. Paul asks in verse 16, he says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That verse seems to make clear that Paul had been negatively portrayed to these Galatians as an enemy by these Judaizers because of his grace alone salvation message. There you have it. 
Those that teach that favor before God can only be attained through a combination of grace and works are the enemies of those who believe the simplicity of the gospel message all by itself. Paul expresses disappointment in these Galatians for being affected by those Judaizers. Goes so far as to say so in verse 20 when he says, I stand in doubt of you. He's amazed that they could have been so confused by this false teaching after the clarity with which he taught them previously. Then we have an allegory, beginning with verse 21 of chapter 4. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You'll recall that Hagar was Sarah's servant. When Abraham and Sarah doubted God, Sarah gave Abraham an heir through Hagar, and Ishmael was born. He was not heir to the promises of God that specifically were for Isaac, the biological son of Abraham and Sarah, so Isaac was the son of the promise according to Genesis chapter 17, verses 16 through 19. So here Paul spends an allegory, which is a little difficult to follow, but here's the bottom line on it. Grace is to law as Isaac is to Ishmael. In other words, just as Isaac was Abraham's heir to the Abrahamic covenant, so are those who are saved and kept by grace heirs of the promise of the atonement Jesus provided for us on the cross. Paul's emphasizing that they are separate and distinct, using an allegory between Isaac and Ishmael based upon Genesis chapter 16 to do so. In his analogy, Paul goes prophetic to make an analogy within an analogy, that of the future glory of Jerusalem as it becomes the governmental seat over all the earth. He introduces the allegory in verses 25 through 27, and there quotes Isaiah chapter 54 verse 1 in verse 27 to strengthen his point. So here's the allegory being stated, and here are Paul's conclusions. Number one, the believers are the children of promise, just as Isaac was the child of promise. That's the point he makes in verse 28. Secondly, just as Ishmael's descendants persecuted Isaac's descendants, so do those Judaizers persecute the salvation by grace alone people. That's in verse 29. The remedy in verse 30, disassociate from those Judaizers, just as Abraham disassociated from Hagar and Ishmael at Sarah's very strong request in Genesis chapter 21, verse 10. So there's Paul's conclusion in verse 31. 
So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul's doctrine is that of teaching the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham by faith through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. The Judaizers are stuck in the law of Moses, and they don't understand the concept of salvation by grace. In chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, we pose this question, Are you free or are you not free? Verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they were even cut off which trouble you. For, brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Now Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The word therefore in that verse ties it to the allegory of chapter 4 verses 21 to 31. Remember it all ran together in the original epistle. Grace is freedom. Law is bondage. Don't get caught up in the law. Now let's get specific here. Verses 2 and 3 reflect the sentiment of those Judaizers who brought about the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. The issue is framed there in Acts chapter 15 verse 1 where we find these Judaizers were teaching this. They said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now, circumcision is an integral part of the law of Moses. I mean, the very token of the Mosaic Covenant. There were leaders in the church in Jerusalem who believed that ceremonial circumcision for Gentiles after salvation was absolutely necessary. That event in Acts chapter 15 happened about the same time that Paul's writing Galatians here. Paul thought it to be an outrageous proposition to require Gentiles to be made subject to the Jewish law. As a matter of fact, the outcome of the Jerusalem Council released Gentile believers from the provisions of the law of Moses. The question to verse 2 is simple. You going to trust the law of Moses or you going to trust grace for salvation? Circumcision, as a part of the process of getting saved, invalidates grace and makes one subject to the law of Moses instead, according to verse 3. Now, if somehow you think that keeping the law justifies, you're wrong. It never justifies. That's the key to verse 4. Who is fallen from grace? Answer, it's those who think they are justified by the law, which is an impossible task. 
Only grace through faith justifies. Verse 4 does not say fallen from salvation. It says fallen from grace. These are people who rejected grace in lieu of law-keeping. People who never got saved in the first place because they fell away from the grace that could have saved them, choosing the law instead. Some folks who believe that you can lose your salvation pull this verse out of context to attempt to prove such. So, do we and the Galatians flaunt our release from the Old Testament law? Well, verse 13 says that victorious believers are conscious of their testimony just as Paul said regarding the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, when he said, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Then we have two faith verses, verses 5 and 6. Those verses say, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Now the Greek noun for hope there, elpis, literally means confident expectation. Paul's certain that our righteousness comes about by faith, verse 5, and not law or circumcision, verse 6. A byproduct of salvation by grace is one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit's empowerment, and that's love we see in verse 6. Paul will accentuate that point down in verse 22. In verse 7, Paul asks them, how did you get off track? He points out in verse 8 that this false doctrine some have embraced is not after God. In other words, him that calleth you is the way he phrases that. And then a simple statement about leaven, as in yeast, in verse 9. It grows and grows. It's just like when a little bit of false doctrine is injected in among members of a congregation. In verse 10, he suggests that they identify the false teachers among themselves and submit them for judgment. Now, hold on to your hat. Paul has an extreme word with a hint of sarcasm here. He says, For those who refuse to heed the council's decree of Acts chapter 15, and for those that continue to teach the necessity of Gentile ritual circumcision, here's what he says about them in verse 12. He says, I would that they were even cut off, which trouble you. The Greek word there for uh, cut off, it's a verb, apokopto. Literally, Paul is saying that those Judaizers teaching this false doctrine deserve castration. I mean, what's up with a foreskin? I mean, if some is good, then more is better, right? Ouch. Then in verse 13, Paul turns the discussion to the issue of the correct, non-abusive use of liberty, as in freedom from the law of Moses. Paul combats the notion that when one is not subject to the law of Moses, he has a tendency to act lawlessly, in other words, run wild, so to speak. Then he sums up the law of Moses with regard to human interaction when he declares in verse 14, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He undoubtedly had in mind the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, when there the law was boiled down by Jesus into two action items, the first one, love for God, and the second, love for one another. The warning of verse 15 causes us to think that there was some significant friction that as a result of this false doctrine existed in the church there that was being taught, even perhaps mean-spirited. 
Now, here's the key to Christian living, beginning in chapter 5, verse 16, down through verse 26. Verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, if you've heard me preach, you know that I just wear these verses out. I do so because herein lies the key to victorious Christian living. Verses 16 through 18 describe a battle that takes place within believers between the old nature and the Holy Spirit. There's a misunderstanding among some Christians that once we're saved, we're no longer plagued by a sinful nature. Of course, that's not true. And Paul adequately defines the struggle that takes place within each believer in these three verses between the Holy Spirit and the old carnal nature of man. That's verses 16 through 18. Each of these influences exists to some degree within every believer. Which is stronger? Is it the carnal nature of the flesh, or is it the Holy Spirit? These verses kick off a full discussion of Holy Spirit leadership in the believer, and how a believer can be certain to be controlled by the Spirit. He concludes in verse 18, But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, we're told here that following the Spirit delivers us from the power of the sinful nature. Well, what are the products of the carnal nature, the flesh? Well, they're listed in verses 19 to 21. And if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, I take each word, show you the Greek, and explain in detail what it means. But let us just suffice to say for the podcast here that these are, you know, pretty depraved conduct activities and uh, need to be avoided. Verse 21 has confused some folks. Uh, the last verse of these three verses that I'm talking about here, 19 to 21. It's confused some folks. Here's the bottom line on that verse. When believers rebel against God by responding to the sinful nature rather than the Holy Spirit, God's chastening intervenes. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 to 32. Those are proof texts. Read those verses and the commentary that associated with them, and you'll see what I mean. This is the safeguard that ensures the believers don't practice these rebellious activities of verses 19 to 21. And by the way, we're talking about those who practice sin without physical consequence from God in this passage when Paul says of them, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The Greek word for do there is praso. It's a present active participle in the text. Used in that way, it refers to a continual practice. Coupled with the clear doctrine of chastisement of believers for sin, that means that only lost people are able to practice as a lifestyle these actions of verses 19 to 21 
Without the intervening hand of God, this chastisement for sin is not to be mistaken with trial from God. If you'd like more information on the difference between trial and chastisement, then on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's a link that you can click on that says Trial versus Chastisement, or you can find that very same article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org on the main page. Well, then we have the good list found in verses 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit list. These nine attributes are the indicators that a person is being led by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say fruits, plural, by the way. It says fruit, singular. In other words, when describing a Holy Spirit-led Christian, one should be able to use all nine of these attributes to do so. Just as an apple has certain distinctive characteristics, so does a believer. And here are those characteristics. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, from the Greek word makrothemia, which means to suffer long with someone without losing one's temper. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, means uh, humility, and temperance means self-control. Now let me just say it again. When a believer is controlled and led by the Holy Spirit, here's what he looks like in verses 22 and 23. Paul concludes in verses 24 through 25 by emphasizing that if a believer wants to be pleasing to God and experience victory, Spirit-led living is the key. In other words, Holy Spirit leadership in a believer keeps under subjection the lust of one's flesh. Verse 25 emphasizes that when we are led by the Holy Spirit, a walk or a lifestyle will reflect it by demonstrating the attributes that we see here in verses 22 and 23. Now, how does a person become Spirit-led? Well, it's easy, really. I call it practicing good spiritual hygiene, comprised of four practices in which all believers should be involved. The first is that we need to spend daily consistent time in God's Word. The second is we need to spend daily time in prayer. Third of all, we need to consistently fellowship with other believers. Church is a great place for that. And lastly, but not least, share one's faith by becoming involved in some aspect of ministry, a ministry that has an impact for Christ on other people. These activities feed the spiritual man and make us strong believers living in victory. Try it. You'll like it. Then there's one final allusion to the friction there in Galatia in verse 26 where he mentions vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another, the opposite attributes from those found in verses 22 and 23. Now when we get down to Galatians chapter 6 verses 6 through 10, Paul's going to present the concept of sowing to the Spirit. This practice of good spiritual hygiene is the equivalent to sowing to the Spirit. If you want to be led by the Holy Spirit, you'll need to sow to the Spirit, as in practice good spiritual hygiene. That brings us then to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. These are good verses demonstrating the responsibility that believers have to one another. When one stumbles within the body of Christ, others should help identify the problem and then assist in the restoration process. 
most folks today think that it's just best to mind your own business. Well, they're wrong about that. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, we have a spiritual responsibility to help one another along in victorious Christian living. And that isn't always compatible with the world's recommendation of minding one's own business. These five verses are mandates to believers to assist fellow struggling believers when they have spiritual difficulties, just as you would for a family member in crisis. Now, looking at these five verses closely, let's observe the following. In verse 1, we have this description. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. Now, this word for fault is usually translated trespass and also elsewhere translated as trespass, offense, or sin. Paul just listed the works of the flesh in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, and that's undoubtedly what's in view here. And then he says, Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Well, those who are spiritual are defined in verses 24 through 26. Those are Christians led by the Holy Spirit. Then he says this, Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Here's the warning. Exercise extreme caution when ministering to those engaged in the sins of verses 19 to 21 of chapter 5, and that's to prevent against being adversely spiritually affected yourself. Then he says this, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The spiritual welfare of other believers is every spiritually-minded believer's business. The law of Christ was defined by Paul back in chapter 5, verse 14. Then he says, For if any man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Then, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. This verse speaks of the minister to the one overtaken in a fault. He needs to be one who is proven to be spiritually strong for this ministry of bearing another person's burdens. And then he says, and concludes in verse 5, For every man shall bear his own burden. The minister must demonstrate his ability to stand firm upon godly principles as he bears the burden of this particular service of ministering to those who have a fault. Now, some get a little confused between the two statements here. Verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then verse 5 says, For every man shall bear his own burden. Actually, a transition has taken place in those verses from discussing the burden of sin, the fault, in verses 1 and 2, to that of discussing the ministry of believers, or shall we call it the burden of service of believers, in verses 3 through 5. Each believer needs to find his place of service within the body of Christ, and that's the burden that he or she must bear alone. Then we have some verses on giving in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6. Verse 6, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. 
As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So, where do you invest your resources? Well, here are Paul's instructions to these Galatian believers. Paul encourages these Galatian believers to provide for the needs of those who provide them with spiritual and scriptural training. When he says in verse 6, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. So here's what he's saying. He's saying if you're being fed by a ministry, support it with your financial resources. Paul continues his discussion on giving by addressing giving for the needs of other believers. Paul's telling the people here that they should be generous with others instead of judging them. How many times have you heard someone say, You reap what you sow? Well, they didn't make that up. That's, that's Bible, right out of verse 7 here. In verse 8, Paul distinguishes between sowing to corruption or sowing to life everlasting. Now, the reference here is that selfish deeds have rewards that don't last into eternity, in contrast to those who unselfishly sow with eternity in mind. Paul uses that same word for corruption, thora, to describe our corruptible bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42, and then again in verse 50. He's referring to the judgment seat of Christ scenario of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Not only so, but the sowing-reaping analogy used here as well as in verse 9, where it's suggested that as we keep ministering, others will minister to us. Likewise, Paul says in verse 10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, it's important for us not to miss the sowing reaping analogy of these verses. The soweth to the spirit of verse 8 is specifically addressing ingesting the word of God. Some might misunderstand that giving money to teachers, the teachers of the word of God is the sowing. No, that's not it at all. We're encouraged to support them so they can be instrumental in sowing the word of God to our spiritual man. We need the Word of God to grow spiritually. That's just one component of good spiritual hygiene. Then in verses 11 through 18, we have final warnings and a benediction. Verse 11, You see how large a letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God." From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. In verse 11, it's not clear whether Paul's talking about the length of his letter written without the assistance of a transcriber, or whether he's talking about the size of the letters he actually wrote, a reference perhaps to his eye problem. Scholars disagree on that one. I'm good with either. So what about these Judaizers? Why did they do it? Well, Paul says in verses 12 and 13 that they do it because they're conformist. They don't want to rock the ecclesiastical boat, so to speak. 
He goes further in verse 13 to point out that they don't practice what they preach. They don't adhere to the whole law of Moses. They're just looking for attaboy points for getting you to comply with their false doctrine. In verse 13, when he says that they may glory in your flesh. In verse 14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world was crucified unto me, and I into the world. In other words, his whole life is wrapped up in ministry. That's all that motivates him. He's put away worldly ambitions and desires. Verse 15 is clear. Whether one is richly circumcised or not, well, that's not an issue for these believers. In verse 16, he says, in essence, heed the word and live in peace. Paul validates his ministry and teaching in verse 17 when he says, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Finally, verse 18, not just a bye-bye, but a parting expression that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That closing statement flies in the face of the teaching of those Judaizers about whose false teaching Paul wrote this very letter. In parting, Paul once again warns against those Judaizers who are teaching one has to be circumcised to be accepted with God. He points out that even they don't keep the entire law. Incidentally, Paul frequently refers to observant Jews as the circumcision in his writings. Just don't let them snooker you into doing that which is meaningless. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.